Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is a very special episode 47.5 for June 2015. I'm your co-host number one, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is my co-host number two, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? I'm here. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> uh, and harmonically so. <laughs> yeah, so this is an interview, actually. Um, not this, don't don't worry. This is not a another um, Quinn and Mike comment on a TV show that, that you can't see or anything like that. But uh, this is an interview uh, between Matt Ownby and John Brooks. And I know the name Matt Ownby because he's the guy who does who uh, did the Daphne uh, Laserdisc emulator, which I think is very cool. And who is Mr. Brooks, Quinn? Uh, well, John Brooks is probably best known for uh, Rastan on the Apple IIGS, uh, oh, okay. which has got to be one of the best games ever to have existed on the platform. And uh, this interview is really terrific. It kind of uh, came out of the blue, actually. Matt had posted on uh, Facebook that he had gotten in contact with John as a result of his work on the uh, Daphne uh, Laserdisc emulator, and uh, they had some common interests there. Uh, I guess John had done some work on emulating uh, Space Ace uh, himself. They got to talking, and uh, Matt decided to go ahead and record uh, their conversation, and uh, they got really deep into uh, all sorts of technical stuff on the Apple II. They go into um, disk formats and reverse engineering disk controllers and copy protection and uh, all sorts of wonderful things involving 2GS uh, rendering details. So yeah, he recorded this thing and posted that he had the uh, recording on the uh, Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group. And so I got in touch with him and asked if we could uh, air it on the show here. And he very graciously agreed to do so. So we're very excited to be able to do that. For the technical-minded uh, Apple II folks out there, you're really going to love this. It's very, very detailed, very deep, and uh, really, really interesting. So uh, here we go. How are you doing? This is John. Hey, John. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Let me see if I can get the camera thing working here. Hold on. <laughs> All right. So, all right, not great lighting in here, but hopefully it kind of works. Cool, yeah. I can see. Okay, that's good. Well, it looks like you have lots of parts behind you. Yes. Here you can <laughs> see my uh, Apple II just disk drives, my old Apple II disk 2, my file all right. recorder. All right. My system saver 2GS. <laughs> you get the whole collection. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually in the basement here. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how the wives, you don't like that sort of stuff up in the uh, top of the house, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of stuff we can cover. I think kind of the question is, what do you want to start on first, and how do you want to go? Um, well, before we start, is you had mentioned that you suggested that I record this. Is that still okay with you? Yeah, no, I think that's good, uh, because some of the stuff is not particularly obvious or easy to kind of figure out instantaneously as we go, so it might be useful to re uh, refer back to it for you. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and do that then. Um, All right. So just some a little bit more background about why I'm interested in the copy protection stuff mm -hmm. is because I'm, um, I'm big into like preserving my memories from when I was a kid, mm -hmm. and um, that's why I do the whole thing with the laser disc emulation and stuff, and 
I also was a huge um, Apple II and Apple II GS fan, and I've noticed that all of the stuff that's been preserved out there is just like all the games that have been preserved are like the cracked versions. Yep. And no one has ever tried to preserve like the original copy protected versions. And I think, well, you know, if we're going to really preserve the history, we need to preserve the copy protected versions, <laughs> not just the cracked versions. I mean, because there yeah, was some true. there were some really cool copy protection schemes. And when I was back when those games were new, I was too young to really understand it. And mm -hmm. so I kind of like to go back and just research and see exactly what they did for some of those old games. And yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I can cover a lot of the different techniques and stuff if you want. Um, so in like 82 or 83, I think it was, I uh, created, so it was my first commercial program. It was called uh, Dyson, D-I-S-U-N. And I just sold it in the classified section in the back of like Small Talk Magazine and, um, and uh, was it Nibble Magazine? And there was like all, all these enthusiast apple magazines and so it was just kind of uh um it was sort of like, it was one of the early uh, nibble readers so i just read all the nibbles off the disc uh -huh. but then i could scan it and display it to the user and let the user specify what the sector and data header and trailers were because uh -huh. in, the, in the original days that's usually what people would do to protect their data is they would just change the headers uh -huh. for the dos sectors right and then in that way um so all you really had to do to access the data was to change the headers you know, the, the like P5896 bytes that right, the uh, right. uh -huh. that the DOS was was looking for, and then it would just go ahead and read the data, and you could copy to your own disks and get and get the data off. Sure. <clears throat> but anyway, so so but kind of through that process of so so that was a, it's it's a you know stated goal, but it was used a lot by people to you know extract data off of protected disks because um you know again the changes were usually pretty simple, and being able to see the nipple data, which later Locksmith and other packages did as well. Right. Uh, it was pretty useful just to see what was going on in the tracks. Uh, but anyway, but as a result of that, I, I got to look a lot at what was happening with different programs and how they were changing the track and sector layouts and the sync fields and other kinds of things that um, made it harder to, to protect or harder to copy. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, so uh, yeah. Uh, so you want to start with the protection stuff that Rastan used? Yes, let's talk about that first. Because, okay. and let me tell you what I already know about the Apple IIGS type of protection. I know that sure. most of the games either, <clears throat> like for example, I, I, I don't know why I remember this, but The Last Ninja, I remember that had a bad block on block number seven. Mm -hmm. So you'd copy it, it would get an error on block seven, the copy would keep going, and then the game would boot up and check block seven and say, oh, this... I can read this, that means it's a copy. So right. the, the bad block check was one of them. And then um, another one that was used by like a lot of the games, including, I believe, Marvel Madness, was they would check for a specific nibble signature on, I think it was like track 20 for some reason. They all they always checked tra track 20. I don't know why what was so special about track 20, but they would check for that. So you'd copy it, and it wouldn't show any errors, but the copy would have a different signature, and that's how they knew it was... <clears throat> It was a copy. And I remember that when your game came out, um, it seemed like... I actually don't know what the protection scheme was, but it just seemed like the people that were like trying to crack it had a really hard time with it. Like There was yeah. something special you did that really threw them off, and that's, why I'm, that's what I'm really curious about. <laughs> yeah, well, it was really a cascade of a number of things. <clears throat> so, so in that era, uh, most copy protection systems were the simple bad block uh, 
check. Uh-huh. And, and what I ended up doing was implementing the same kind of copy protection that we've been using at Datasoft on floppy disks for quite some time. Uh-huh. So Datasoft had been making games for Apple IIs, Atari, ST, um, Amiga, uh, Commodore, Commodore 64. Um, anyway, so pretty much the whole the whole breadth of the home consumer products, uh-huh. and um, and they had customized uh, copy machines that would duplicate the disks using different different protection mechanisms for the different platforms. Okay. Anyway, and, and so the uh, the kind of gold standard of protection that was most desirable at Datasoft, um, if the platform would support it, uh, was called um, floating uh, floating bytes or basically floating bits. And um, and conceptually, what that was uh, is uh, effectively uninitialized regions of the drive. And um, uh, so kind of going to the underlying machinery of what's happening on the floppy disk drives. So it's, um, it's got a, so the disk has got a magnetic pattern to it. Mm-hmm. And when it comes uh, from the factory, they're typically uninitialized, unformatted. And so the uh, magnetic field is all one orientation. And then when the disk writes, uh, when, when, when data is written to the drive, that, uh, that um, single kind of polarity field gets uh, written with sync bits uh-huh. so that because um, the drive is spinning at different speeds on every different mechanism, you know, every two different drives will spin at exactly the same speed. So part of the challenge is trying to figure out where are you on the disk and where are the data bits. And in order to tell where you are and to, and to kind of frame the data bits, you have uh, clock bits. And so the old, like, uh, the, so the typical system was FM or MFM, where you basically have a clock bit in between every data bit. So mm-hmm. effectively, half of your drive is used just to give you um, your framing of your data data bits. Uh-huh. So in between any two, in between any uh, pair of of clock bits, you'll either have a zero data bit or a one data bit. Uh-huh. Anyway, so of course that's pretty inefficient. Um, and so uh, what Woz did with the Apple II controller early on is he had this thing called group code recording, where instead of having um, instead of having it just be one zero one zero you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He allowed the zero bit to sometimes be where a clock bit would be. So you could, so you still had to have every zero uh, ordered by a pair of ones, but the zero could be in more places, which meant that instead of only getting four data bits or eight bits on the drive, you could get five data bits. Uh. Um, so that was the five plus three encoding that was on DOS 3.2. Right. And then later on, he changed the the um, decode hardware so that you could actually self-clock in a clock bit if there were two zeros. So so now a, a disk nibble of eight bits, it had to start with a with a one bit, but uh, in the middle for for the remaining seven bits, you could have a pair of zeros somewhere in there. Uh-huh. And and what the what the timing circuitry in the in the read head would do is it would say. Um, after a certain amount of time, if I haven't seen a one, I'm going to assume that the that there's a second bit and that that bit is also a zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, and so by being able to get a pair of zeros, uh, that gave enough additional com- combinations that he could get six bits of data in eight bits of the drive. Right. But anyway, so but but the uh, anyway, so what this floating bit uh, protection system is though is uh, it violates that requirement that you have only a single pair of zeros. So effectively, what the float bit protection system would do is it would write a real eight bits of zero to the to the floppy drive. Okay. So with with the drive 
uh, with the magnetic medium, you could write whatever you wanted. You just couldn't read it back again <laughs> because you had to have these timing, these clock bits in order to um, allow the you know the drive to figure out where the data was. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so uh, so what I what I did on uh, on Rastan was um, so every track had like a, a large um, large sync field, and the sync field would be like uh, ten bits of data per byte that was read off of the drive, if I remember correctly. So it would be uh, eight one one bits followed by two zero bits. There'd be a sequence of like twelve of those or eighteen of those or something. There was, was there was a certain number of them where where regardless of where the head started reading the bit pattern, um, so so if if it read the eight ones because every valid data byte had to start with a one, it would skip the next two zeros. So by having a 10-bit pattern of eight ones and two zeros, it would force the head to eventually get to the proper alignment where it would read out FFs oh, there. Okay, okay. So if it ever landed kind of somewhere, so, so when you seek to attract, you're going to start out somewhere in a random middle of right. the bit stream, right? right? And so a big part of what's happening with DOS and the drive and stuff is in order to find out where, how do I get from one of eight possible bit alignments to the proper byte alignment I need in order to read the data? And so the sync field forced that. If the if the head ever passed over the sync field, the lining the reading machinery would be forced to align to the proper byte boundary. Anyway, okay. so, um, and so that's yeah, on so, that's that's on a a properly formatted disk. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. So once you format a drive, really, what what the what the formatting is doing it is going through every track, writing down the clock bits, writing the sync field, writing the the sector header and trailer data, and then the sector data header and trailer data. Uh-huh. So so the other thing that that uh, was going on is that um, every track has multiple sectors on it, and those sectors are individually randomly writable, and so the way that that was made to work is that every sector has a field of these sync bytes uh, at the beginning of it. And so you could seek till you got to the right part of the track you wanted to, you know, to change. And then you could write out your new data field. And even though what you're writing is probably not at the exact same bit alignment as the bytes on of the other sectors, uh-huh. the sync field will force, um, the head to realign before it hits that sector's data. Right. So every sense. write every write has a sync field preceding it, and then the and then the sector header and then the sector data. To, um, but anyway, but it also means that a lot of the disk is lost. A lot of the of the actual storage is wasted with these sync headers per sector and the sector headers and sector data trailers. Um, and so what I did on uh, Tomahawk and Hunt for Red October had a uh, a single data sector per track. So I'd have a small, like I had the minimum sized sync field, and then I just had one track, one, one sector that went the entire remainder of the track. <laughs> and, and so I upped the, the memory size from 800K to, I think, 924K. Um, so there was, there was over 10% uh, overhead in the way the track layout was, was structured. The other thing that was interesting about that is the sectors were interleaved with, I think it was a four-to-one interleave. So effectively, they would write sector zero, and then sector one would be written four sectors later. And the reason for that is because it took the CPU so long to 
to uh, or the, it was basically the operating system. It took DOS or the operating system so long to read a sector in and decode it from this five five plus three or six plus two format uh-huh. that three other sectors would go by before it was ready for the next sector. Right. So effectively, when you load data off of a disk with all these sectors, you're reading it at one quarter of the bandwidth. So three out of four sectors is just passing by unread. Okay. So I thought that was horrible, and so uh, <laughs> you know, so so basically, um, once I started a track, I could just immediately read it and and pull out uh, all the, you know all the data in one rotation instead of having to do four full rotations to get all the sectors, you know, so, all the data off the track. So was this. It sounds like what you're saying is you were creating kind of like your own file system or extending their file system to get a bigger capacity. Uh, yeah, I was, but that was on earlier products. I didn't do that for Rastan because for Rastan, I really wanted it to be hard drive installed because by 1990 or so, so my, my early games were uh, 87, 88, you know, 89. Uh-huh. And in that era, hard drives weren't super common for right. the Apple II. Um, but, but by 1990, Hard drives were pretty, you know, pretty available and fairly mainstream, and uh, and I and so I wanted to have the data be in standard uh, kind of ProDOS format and be copyable off to the hard drive. So I actually did very little um, mucking around with the floppy format. The only thing I did so so that was part of my challenge when designing the copy protection system for Rastan is I wanted it to be. Uh, for the most part, a standard format disk with standard data that could be copied anywhere. Uh-huh. But I wanted the floppy, the, ma- the floppy master, to retain uh, a uncopyable signature that could be validated uh, when the game launched. Okay, so they'd have to have the disk in the drive, even if they launched it from a hard drive. Right, right. Okay. So yeah, so the game was set up so you could you could just copy all the contents of the two, of the two floppies onto one folder on your hard drive. It would run from there, and when it came to the copy protection check, it would go uh, uh, check the floppy just for the copy protection copy protection signature. And if it passed, then it would continue onward. And if it wouldn't, it would just it would just prompt you to put it in the, the disk. Okay. Um, and and again, what the copy protection mechanism was were these float float bytes. And so so what I did is I had in the sync field of um, of one of the sector, uh, one of the tracks uh, sync fields, um, I wrote, uh, I think it was like four zero bytes, which meant that um, when the when the head tried to read those, it was going to guess, um, so, so it was going to try to clock in some ones after enough time had passed, uh-huh. which is what that, that GCR 6 plus 2 system would do. Uh-huh. So it had a shortened window. If, it's, if, it, if it doesn't seem a clock bit, it would just guess that there's a zero there. Um, but, um, but after a little bit more time, it would have to put a, put a one in. It couldn't, go in, you know, it couldn't, couldn't read a zero. It, ha- it would have to keep clocking stuff in. And, um, and so it would always start with a leading one, and it would kind of clock in varying number of bits at whatever rate the, the silicon of that drive was was running, which varies with temperature and all kinds of other stuff. So it's it's very it's very variable. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so 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 effectively, what the copy protection system on Rastan would do is it would read that uh, sync field. I think it was like four times, and then I would get four different copies of these zero bytes. And every time I would read it, I would get a different value, different result, because those values were unstable and they would float. The, uh-huh. the value, as far as the head was concerned. 
you know, those bits would float around. And so fundamentally, the copy protection system on Rastan was just to verify that that, that this uh, data pattern in the middle of the sync field was, um, you know, was a, a, a set of float bytes that would that were varying every time. So a copy program would come along, it would read that data, and it would read back valid six, six plus two data because the controller had to return data in that valid format. Oh. And then it would write it out uh, to the you know to the drive, uh, and also because this was in the sync field, the sync field was usually never copied directly. It was just recognized. So this is the sync field, and all that was really copied was the sector headers and the sector data fields. Okay. So um, so effectively, this is kind of in the the it's in the alignment noise area of the track. Okay. And so again, it was typically skipped by all the copy protection, all the copying programs, particularly three and a three point five inch, uh, uh, you know, copy programs, which weren't as sophisticated as the Apple II, uh, five and a quarter nibble copiers. Uh-huh. I think there were some some nibble copiers that were made for the uh, three and a half inch drives eventually, but I don't. I don't, don't my memory's a little foggy now. Yeah, I that. think I think Copy Two Plus had one that was supposed to be able to do it. Oh yeah, it sounds right. like that would for sure fail with your scheme because your scheme relies on getting a basically a random read every single time. Yeah, so interesting enough, there's no real reason why the copy programs couldn't detect that they were getting random reads and in that situation write out invalid bytes, which would then also read randomly. So it was absolutely a copyable system. And in fact, I had a utility program for Rastan that would let me generate uh, you know, that data. <laughs> I could copy my masters as much as I wanted. Uh, but... Um, but all the standard copy programs would fail. Um, and one uh, one wrinkle in this design is that I needed to have low-level nibble access to the track in order to check the copy protection system. Right. But a significant number of GS owners had Unidisks instead of the, the Apple II disk. I don't remember what it was called. Uh, there, there, so there was, there was one type of, of drive that, that only worked on the Mac, three and a half, and there was another type that would work on a Mac or sorry, there was, there was one type that only worked on an Apple II GS, and there was another type that would work on a Mac or a GS. Mm-hmm. And, and the one that was on the Mac or the GS was called a Unidisc, if I remember correctly, um, and it had uh, a, a processor inside. And so that was a big pain in the butt because I effectively had to um, write a program that would run inside the drive, and then I would have to, so if someone was running Rastan off of a unit disk, I would detect it was a unit disk, and then there was a whole smart port protocol that was used to communicate with the external drive, and and, and, and I would download my code into the drive, and I think it was a 6502 running uh, in the unit disk. <laughs> and then, uh, so I had to move all my copy protection code over there, and then run it locally, and then return back the result of whether, you know, whether it passed or failed. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so I remember that was a, a minor nightmare. Um, but um, wow. anyway, and, and so then once the copy protection, uh, so, so once these float uh, bytes were checked and either they were floating or they were stable, and of course if they were stable, it was a failed protection check, uh, then I kept prompting, prompting the user to put in the master disk. Um, so of course that loop of prompting to, see, to put in the master disk was fairly uh you know, fairly obvious in the code and fairly easy to uh, dis- to disable. So that led to the second layer of copy protection in Rastan, which is that I um, I had a time-sized uh, 
um, validation routine that checksum the entirety of the code. So if any change was made anywhere in the code, um, Rastan would fail. But it wouldn't fail immediately. It would fail, uh, you know, some number of seconds or minutes in the future. So it was very difficult to find out where this checksumming was happening at and disable it. And that was the thing that I think gave a lot of the uh, early people trying to uh, crack Rastan the hardest time because, you know, typically when you crack a program, you just go find out what it's doing and you go change it so it doesn't do that anymore and it's cracked, right? right. Um, but, but with Rastan, um, uh, you know, any change to the program and you could continue playing for a few minutes, then it would fail. Um, and, uh, and there's a couple interesting things about that too. So the way it would fail is once the, uh, so the, the copy protection check um, would check a, a small s section of the code um, every game frame, I think, or maybe every few game frames it would check a small section of the code. So it took it actually quite a while to check all the code, and so, but it could take it a while before it detected it. And then once it detected it, it didn't right away trigger the failure case. It waited for a while. Um, so again, there was a long uh, separation between the detection machinery and the failing machinery. And then also the failing machinery I placed on the text page. Um, so if you ever stop the program with like, you know, with delete or with hitting, hitting reset or anything uh -huh. to get a prompt, well, it would clear the text screen and it would blow away the, the copy protection code. Uh, <laughs> and, and, then, <laughs> and then when the copy protection uh, code got, or, or when the, when the checksum failure code got triggered, it would make a OS call, which would put a message and then have the little bouncing apple. Uh -huh. So it was a it was a single uh, um, BIOS call or not BIOS, but you know a, a single uh, um, OS call you could you could make when pass it a string, uh -huh. um, and it would go into that little bouncing message. And, I, and I, I think it said something like, you know, please stop piracy. It's killing the uh, the Apple the Apple two GS market or something. <laughs> and I had GEAD as the uh, as the error code, so it was uh, you know it's it's killing the, the GS market dead or something or making it dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's been too long, but anyway, but the, but the funny thing about that is that OS call, of course, one of the things it would do is it would clear the screen to print out that message. Uh -huh. So, uh, so in either case, the code that had triggered the, um, the failure case wasn't even around anymore. It was just, it was just gone from memory. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so, so yeah, I definitely was having fun with the, uh, with the pirates there, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh being on it. And, and ultimately the guy that, that cracked, uh, Rastan in that first, you know, it was like in the first week it was out, it got cracked. Uh, and, and he was the guy I knew, I knew. and, uh, and, he, and, um, and he, and he was a pretty smart guy too. So he, he can't take it as a personal challenge. Like, you know, for three or four days, I think that's all he did was he just, you know, this is something the program trying to figure out how to, how to, how to, uh, you know, climb the Everest, uh, that, that I had thrown out there for him. So it was the game within the game, uh, is kind of how that went down. Yeah. Um, and, and ultimately what he ended up doing is, uh, so he couldn't find and get around my copy, the copy checksumming routine because of all that craziness that I had in there with the, the big separation in time between the, the detection failure and then the response and how the response code was hard to get, get to and, and, and figure out what it was doing and, and disable it. And so what he ended up doing is he ended up patching, patching ProDOS itself. So he, he found an OS call that I made to DOS uh, prior to checking the checksum code. Uh -huh. So... When Rastan called into DOS, he would intercept the call. He would disable my check 
for the floating bytes. You know, so basically the floating bytes come back and say, oh, it's a, it's a failure, it's a failing, it's not a master basically. It, you know, it's failing the, the float byte check. Uh-huh. You would disable that code, but then shortly after there, there was another operating, another Prodos call. And so when he saw the second Prodos call come in, he would put the original code back so that my code checksum routine wouldn't fail. So uh-huh. basically did a short window patch just long enough to bypass my float byte checksum routine and then continue onward. Um, so I thought that was a pretty clever uh, circum- way to circumvent because even though I checked some my code, I hadn't checked uh, the OS, basically. And so he patched the OS, which I called. Uh, so yeah, so I thought that was good. Yeah, that's that seems like he's kind of cheating, though, because <laughs> he didn't actually find your code. That's true. But all fair in love and war and, and, uh, and protection, I think, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah. So when you checked the when you did the checksum, were you reading like the executable off the disk, or were you checking memory? Checking the memory, and that was that was why that was particularly difficult is because in order to have high performance code, and Rastan really had to be high performance with all the sides, the full screen scrolling and and stuff. Mm-hmm. High performance code on the on the A16 pretty much required self modifying code. So. I would say there were hundreds, if not thousands, of loops that were modifying themselves in order to run quickly. Uh... And uh, yeah, and, and so and so what all those routines did is they all started out with a known starting case for the address. So they would say like load A from two thousand comma Y and store at twenty one hundred comma Y or whatever, right? And I would patch the two thousand and the twenty one hundred to be the source and destination of whatever was needed for that, you know, for that routine. Uh, on the fly, uh, and then that loop would run, and then at the end I would put them back. I put the, the original contents back. So all my modifying code routines in Rastan were they would modify and then they would return themselves to their previous state, so okay. that the checksum wouldn't fail. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So yeah. it was fun. So do you, do you think that the other, like for example, um, like I remember, Marvel Madness did like a nibble check. Do you think they did a similar check that that you did with like the floating bytes, or do you think they just inserted like a specific nibble into like you know like the sync bytes somewhere and were looking for that? Or do you, you know, know what? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, so as far as I can tell, the reason everyone did the bad block check is because it would run on either drive, either the one that had this, the embedded sixty five hundred two controller. Or the one that was being, you know, directly controlled by the integrated WAS chip in the GS. Uh-huh. Um, so once you go to read disk nibbles, it's a lot harder if you're going to work with the, you know, the, the Mac compatible Unidisc. Um, uh, yeah, so it'd be interesting to, with with Marvel Madness to see if it works with the, you know, with the, with the Mac drive. Because it maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it wouldn't. I don't know either. I I think probably that that game might have come out before the Mac drive. I don't know. I, I just I, I've never heard of this drive that would work on a two GS or a Mac. So it sounds like you had to deal with like a unique challenge. Yeah. Well, so so if I remember correctly, the three and a half drives for the GS were like gray in color, and they would connect to the back smart port. Yes. And then the, the Mac ones were a white were, were a white in color. Oh, okay. Um, and um, and again, they would also connect. It's just that that the WAS chip 
on the GS wouldn't control the drive directly. It was a communication protocol where DOS would talk to the embedded controller in the drive, and the 6502 in the drive would do all the, the track nibble, all the disk nibble stuff, and then pass the results back. Um, but yeah, I had both of them, and you know I wanted them both to work, so I, I went the extra mile. Uh, <laughs> which may, may have been unnecessary, but I just figured it would suck if someone had a Mac-style drive and, you know, couldn't play the game because the copy protection system failed. Yeah. They would be they would be displeased. <laughs> right. But then on the other hand, uh, so my other other alternative was to was to not do the copy protection check on a on a white drive, in which case anyone that had a white drive could copy the disk to their heart's content and it would you know, it would be basically an ineffective copy protection. Yeah. So although you know, the 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 pirate community was so sophisticated at that point that I'm not sure protection really mattered very much anyway. I mean people circumvented it pretty quickly, so I mean, it maybe got us a week or two, but that was about it, I think. So, so you said you knew the, you knew the guy, the first guy that cracked the game. Mm -hmm. Did you? So, were you like friends with the pirate community? <laughs> well, it, so yeah. Well, ironically, um, the, uh, the the GS community was fairly small, yeah, um, and and so really there weren't that many people that were that were um, high, highly confident programmers, uh -huh. and so. Uh, so yeah, I think you know for the most part, uh, all the good programmers were assembly guys, and if you're programming an assembly, it's pretty easy to look at the assembly programs and other, you know, and other things. Uh -huh. So, um, uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I think it was just kind of the enthusiast community of the day was a, kind of a, a hybrid of, uh, you know, people that were copying programs, people that were looking at programs, people that were writing programs. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was just a big hodgepodge, right? Like everyone had copies of of things, right? Uh, I don't. I don't think I, I knew a single Apple II user who who had only purchased software. Like right. everyone had copies of something, right? It was just uh, there was too much stuff out there, and it was all too uh, uh, you know, too varied and informative for people to you know to have purchased copies of everything. Right. At least that's what I remember. But then also met up in the age. And I was like you know a teenager basically when I was doing most of my Apple II stuff. So yeah, sure. I, I remember those days. I remember. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, there there'd be parties where you know people would bring their computers, they'd get together, and you know they would uh, see what program somebody else had that they didn't have, or they would go figure out you know how is this program working, and there were bulletin boards where people were talking about that stuff all the time. And, and in fact, a lot of what I and how I ended up learning about the Apple II was a combination of talking to other people via modem and bulletin boards, and then disassembling programs to see how they worked. Uh -huh. um, and part of that I think was actually kind of the Apple II culture as well. Like a lot of what I learned was just disassembling uh, uh, DOS and ProDOS, disassembling the basic uh, interpreter, looking at uh, Wozniak's uh, floating point math libraries. I mean, you know, it's just a lot of it was learned by observation of what mm -hmm. what other people have done. So, so do you remember any BVSs that you called back then? Well, I don't. I don't remember their names. Um, I know there was one in Southern California that I called a fair amount, and there was one in Florida, uh, but I don't remember what they were. It's been too long. I remember there was one in New Jersey. I think it was called the Hidden Stronghold that I called. Yeah, and yeah, that had, one sounds. Like and they advertised having a hundred megs of space. I'm like, holy cow, a hundred megs! <laughs> <laughs> How many floppies is that? <laughs> yeah. 
And there was one called, I think it was called The Outer Limits, which they were affiliated with the East Coast Connection. I don't know if you remember that. I think those are, that was one group that was like trying to crack your game. And it oh, took, yeah. took the guy like 72 hours and he was like complaining about it. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. 72, I, 72 hours is a long time. <laughs> that's true. Well, that was the thing. Is that's probably all the people were doing. I mean, they were probably just like, just parked in front of their computer for days trying to, trying to unravel the uh, little tangled knot I, I gave to them. But, you know, actually, I think it was kind of fun. It was the game within the game, you know. So did you pay attention to how long, how long it took people to like actually crack it? Were you like watching that? Uh, not really, because the uh, the uh, Super Nintendo had come out, and I uh, so in 1990 the 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 Super Nintendo was an A16 based system, and it was far more capable as a gaming platform. Uh-huh. And so um, uh, I worked at, I was working at Novologic at the time, and we had a guy go to Japan, bring back a Super Nintendo with a couple cartridges, and then we desoldered the EEPROM, put in an EEPROM emulator, and then I started right on uh, figuring out how it worked, and basically. I reverse engineered a Super Mario and, you know, started, uh, I created an assembler on my Mac to be able to generate 6816 code um, for the uh, for the SNES. So, yeah, I, I was pretty busy after Rastan just kind of getting into the console game space. Okay, so you went to Super Nintendo development right afterwards. Right. That's, that would make sense because I think, I think Rastan was like one of the last really huge 2GS games. I don't remember like yeah. a huge one coming out after that. Maybe yeah, Task want... Force. Oh right. You remember Task yeah. Force? I do. Yeah. In fact, yeah. so I knew a lot of the guys that did Task Force. They were also kind of enthusiast guys, and that was like kind of their first commercial product before they went off. And I think they went to doing, uh, yeah, they, they went to doing games on other platforms. But I don't remember what the platforms were. Mm-hmm. It was the Visual Concepts guys, I think. Um, I don't know who they were. I, I just remember thinking that game was absolutely amazing. <laughs> like, holy crap! Like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I believe those guys are, are the ones that are doing uh, NBA 2K now. Uh-oh. So they, yeah, the uh, the old school, the old school Apple, uh, the old school Apple II guys went and did um, Madden for many years. So Madden Super Nintendo, and then um, the whole Madden franchise for EA. And then uh, they also did, and, and another group of them did Visual Concepts, which did both football and basketball games, and, and still do basketball games. Oh, so they're still around. <laughs> yeah. So, do you um, do you remember the five and a quarter inch version of Prince of Persia? Yeah, that was cool. Do you, are you familiar with the copy protection technique they use for that one? I have no idea. No, I, <laughs> that one. I think they uh, they actually came up with a new um, file system where they could store mm-hmm. 18, eighteen. I think it was. 18 sectors per track instead of 16. Okay. Which yeah. basically meant that you couldn't, if they, as long as they maximized the disk space, it was impossible to copy it because the conventional disk couldn't hold enough space. Well, yeah, so, so we actually did stuff like that at, at Datasoft too. So uh, you could, there was, a, there was a potentiometer on the drive where you could slow down, you, you could control the drive speed. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so we had a bunch of products early on at Datasoft where we used the, the, the slow. It was a slow write was the protection system. Uh-huh. So you slow, you slow down the, the drive a little bit, and then that lets you write more data to it. And the, because the read system will auto-clock in the bits based on the, you know, the, the clock bits and the data bits being interleaved, uh-huh. that um, so if you slow down when you write, when you read at normal speed, the data comes in faster. 
But as long as it doesn't come in too fast, the read system can still decode it properly. Okay. But then if you go to try to write it on a normal speed drive, you know, you can't, it won't write out that, at that. it's more data than you can write out. But uh... if you open up your drive and you turn the pot down, then <laughs> you can actually get it all the way around. You know, like the, the nibble copier will be able to write it all the way around. So it, uh... it, 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 um, it's not as 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 hard to defeat that part protection system as some other systems because mm-hmm. all you have to do is know that the the track has got too much data, which means you need to slow your drive down with with the pod. But yeah, I'm not sure how many people were that sophisticated to <laughs> probably not too many. Right. So so when you when these discs went off to like the manufacturer to like be mass produced, how did they mass produce them? Did they did you like provide them with like like a program actually, to like create the disc. Well, so that's kind of a funny story. So, so, um, so I, when I got my first job in the programming industry, is at DataSoft. I was 18. Uh, it was a big warehouse in um, the San Fernando Valley, uh, and and the the front half of it, when you walk in on the left side, it was an office building with a drop ceiling, and there was a bunch of people in there programming and doing some art and doing some testing and stuff. And then uh, on the right half was a um, was a warehousing company and a disc manufacturing company, the offices for them. And then the whole back half of the warehouse was the warehousing and the disc manufacturing facility. So it was basically like four quarters in this, in this big warehouse building. And Datasoft effectively had multiple companies under their umbrella, and then they would do everything. So they would warehouse stuff, lar- largely their own products. They would manufacture. Uh, yeah, so they, they had a whole bunch of Apple IIs with modified floppy drives and like big stacks of them. So they had six or eight drives on every Apple II. And then uh, so the other thing that was kind of funny is in the back of the warehouse, there was roll-up doors. And right behind the roll-up doors was the train. And they would put all the, all the uh, copied products on the train, which would drive them up to EA for distribution all around the world. So, uh, so it, was, it was just kind of nuts as, you know, as kind of a young kid starting out in the industry to see all these moving parts all under one roof. Um, and, and basically, it went from people typing to stuff in a box that you would buy at a store and just put on a train and off it goes. Uh, and so, so uh, yes, that, that was pretty pretty wild. And my, and my first product, uh, Datasoft, uh, was Tomahawk, uh, a flight simulator, one of the few flight simulators for the 2 or, or 2GS. Um, and uh, I remember I had a bug on it, and uh, I'd been working uh, – on the bug for there was two or three bugs. I was down to one last kind of major bug, and I've been working on it over the weekend. But Monday morning, the the manufacturing guys came in from the back door uh, into the office area, and they're like, "Okay, I need I need the master so I can start manufacturing because we have to put it on the train, you know, end, end of the day or whatever." And I'm like, "Well, I'm still trying to find this bug," and they're like, "Well, we have to make like you know two thousand discs, so I you know I need that disc now because it's <laughs> take us several hours to manufacture it, right?" And so I reluctantly gave them what I had, knowing that it had this crash bug in it, and it wasn't really the right thing right uh-huh. but um but talk about as a programmer kind of getting it's kind of the fear of god thing it's like okay well your bug is being manufactured right now and putting onto all these discs they're going to go in boxes and people are going to buy them <laughs> you know so, <laughs> so so i really should probably fix that bug so uh, it took me like two more hours to find it and fix it and then we had to have like this powwow meeting with the head of datasoft the head of the manufacturing group uh and the head of engineering and myself where i'm like okay here's the bug you know, I got a fix for it. I'm pretty sure this is it. How many? And then they had to have this whole discussion of, you know, how many discs have we manufactured? You know, and we're back there, and the, and the production guy looks over, and he's got this stack of discs, you know, and 
and he's like, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to lose, you know, two hours if we redo them all. And so, but anyway, but they decided to, to redo them. And, uh, I think they, instead of shipping out a thousand at the end of the day, they just shipped 500 or whatever the number was, right. They ended up doing a, a smaller initial shipment and then they made up for it later. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was just kind of crazy. The whole, um, on the fly process of code debug, test, duplicate, stuff it in a box, put it in the pallet, put it on the train, off it goes. Um, so yeah, some craziness, but yeah, but, but those, those, uh, drives on the Apple II, so they had, uh, so the floppy disks had a hole in them uh, that would show you where track zero was or sector uh-huh. zero. Uh-huh. And Apple twos didn't have a sensor for that, but our drives did. Um, and why that was useful is so that we could do synchronized uh, tracks, which was a copy protection scheme where you read one sector and then you immediately sync to another track and start reading. So the, the tracks, the data from track to track is synced relative to each other. Oh. So, um, <laughs> so, anyway, so Locksmith and one of those copy protection systems, you know, they'll, they'll read the source track a bunch of times so they can figure out what it is and they'll write it down and then they'll go to the next track and they'll read it a bunch of times and they'll write it. But the writing of the second track is not oriented relative to the first track. Oh. And, and the, that loss of orientation uh, will you know, will be checked for and, and it will cause a failure in the uh, yeah. So so the, and, and there was there was actually some apps that uh, some programs where they would have spiral tracks. So they would just read the data in you know in, in a spiral. So it was more of like a, a continuous thing because the it was all magnetic uh, um, substrate on the disk. And the tracks were really just whatever the stepping motor for the head was deciding that, that it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and those definitely had to be in sync with each other, I guess. Yeah. Man, I'm I'm really sorry to hear about this because because <laughs> my a friend and I have, we've been talking about making like a little piece of hardware to like read the disk to read the mm-hmm. disk to drive so that we can like extract the bits off of the disk. Mm-hmm. And like we're trying to think of, you know, okay, what do we need to do to like really preserve everything on this disc? And I said, do you think we need to have the tracks in sync with each other? Because that would be a real pain to try to do that. <laughs> I'm like, let's just let's just so we don't need to make the tracks in sync. But now you just you just shattered my plan. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it depends on. The, I mean, some production systems don't care, and others do care, right? So it, it depends. But yeah, ideally, you know. Uh, you know, ideally, the, the the synchronization would be maintained, or it would have to be reasonably close to be maintained. But see, the the thing is, um, the, the good news now is, back in that era, um, part of the challenge for copy programs is they never knew what people were going to do next, right? Well, now there's really not any, there's there's no more new stuff, right? All, all the production systems have been done; they're all ancient history, yeah. and so now it's just a question of of representing that finite subset of of approaches. Um, and, and as far as I can tell, the, the ones that weren't well represented by the copy programs back in the day were the track to track synchronization, the, the speed variance issues and the floating bytes. As far as I know, those those three are the, the three kind of holes that professional game developers, uh, mostly leaned upon because the copy programs weren't sophisticated enough, but nowadays it's, that would be relatively easy to to recognize those schemes and to, you know, copy with integrity, uh, those approaches, I, I think. Well, the floating byte one sounds like it might be kind of difficult because it sounds like the drive won't actually, was it, what was the thing that inserted the ones? Was it the drive controller? Or was it the drive itself? 
It was the direct controller. So the controller had a self-lock mechanism that would put in ones if it hadn't seen a one coming in off the drive within a certain time period. So if we just hooked up directly to the drive, then we'd get the actual bits. We wouldn't have to worry about those ones being inserted. Uh, yeah, probably. Uh, but even if you use a regular Apple II drive to read the bits off the drive, if you read the track multiple times, which Locksmith and all the copy programs would do anyway, uh-huh. and if there were if there were regions that were varying, then you could infer that those were floating byte regions, oh, yeah. and you could recreate them by writing zeros or you know a similarly uh, illegal unstable pattern. <laughs> the drive would again cause the the drive head to uh, to float. In, in how it interpreted that that region of the drive. Oh, okay. Well, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, like I said, there's, there's a lot of information here, so I'm not, you know, uh, probably good to get it recorded just so that, you know, it'd be preserved one way or the other. Yeah, because that's, that's, actually, that's the reason I contacted you is because we want to make, we want to make a piece of hardware that will hook up to, like, a disk drive and then read all the bits. Mm-hmm. And, but the three and a half inch disc, it seems like that has some kind of controller built into it. Like, it doesn't seem like you can read just raw bits off that thing. It seems like it you returns, but you can read raw bits. Yep. Yeah. So it, it really is just a, it uses the exact same GCR encoding that the uh, floppy drive used. The difference is that the floppy drive had, uh, I think, had the constant rotation speed, whereas the, um, uh, actually, it was a constant rotation speed. So, so the, di- the difference on the three and a half is that it has more sectors uh, on the outer tracks than it has on the inner tracks. So, the larger circumference of the outer track allows more sectors to be packed in there. Right. I, I so, yeah. So, I think what it was doing is it's uh, it was slowing down the rotation speed. It had it had like three or four speed bands, and so. Every few tracks, the number of sectors would increase as you go from the inner ring to the outer ring. Right. Um, but the actual nibbles on the disk and how they're read and stuff and the 6.2 decoding, I think all that was pretty much the same. Okay. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the number of tracks is higher. So instead of 35 tracks, I think it's like 80 tracks or something. Right, yeah, that sounds right. <clears throat> So I have a question about the the 3200 color stuff that sure. you that you did. Yep. So you um you first introduced that for your Tomahawk game. Right. Um did anyone else, I mean do you know of anyone else who started tinkering around with that afterwards? Well, I know someone actually made a a paint program that would work in that mode. Yeah. Um yeah, Dream but... Graphics I think it was called. Yeah, so I think it, that took a couple of years because it was kind of a gnarly mode to try to support. Uh-huh. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, so, so what I was originally trying to do is I was trying to race the beam kind of like the old uh, Ape and Nintendo system. Like with the, with the old Nintendo, uh, pretty much the CPU is drawing the, 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 the pixels as the beam is going. So the, there's like a register saying, you know, what the brightness is or whatever. And the 6502 was like writing values into there, which was changing the color as the as the beam scans across. So, um, so for the most part, on like the old 8-bit Nintendo, 
the game logic runs in vblank because during the screen it's busy like drawing pixels effectively really yeah and so i, so I was trying to you know it's crazy so, so i was like a horrible design <laughs> <laughs> pretty much um so uh but but when i tried to do it on the gs um i realized or so i so i was trying to change the palettes uh because that, that, that's a small amount of data that affects all the pixels on the screen. So I wanted to do some, some palette animation cycling and, and kind of some racing the beam stuff. Anyway, and what I found was that the palettes are latched, uh, they're read in and, and latched by the hardware in the horizontal blank. So before the hardware draws a scan line, it reads the SCB byte and it reads the palette associated with the SCB and it holds them in on-chip registers. And then it reads the pixel data out of the frame buffer and draws the line. Okay. So... So I really couldn't race the beam very effectively because it was all being preloaded into the display chip. Uh-huh. But what was interesting about that is because it was reading it every H blank, it meant that I could, if as long as I changed it a line or two ahead of time, um, I could change it every single scan line. Um, and so then why that was interesting is then I could um, basically have unique colors every scan line and effectively have 3,200 colors with a unique set of 16 every scan line. Right. Uh, and I just used the, uh, the different palettes. So I would say, change them like 16 at a time. I would have palette 15 be used for the first and then palette zero be used for the last. And then, um, so it would be reading those palettes. And then after it had used 15 and was going on to the lower palette numbers, I would be pushing more colors into change palette 15 entries. And so I would kind of follow along. It, it was reading out of the palettes in descending order, and I was pushing new data in, out in descending order, falling yeah. behind. And so I could effectively have 200 different palettes for the 200 scan lines. And that let me take uh, pictures that were real photographs or other things that were much uh, higher you know, visual quality than what the GS could normally display with 16 colors. Uh-huh. Um, but I, that was just kind of a hobby thing. I, I, I think I, I put out in the public domain or whatever – um, a couple of sets of uh, of images that I pulled down from the Amiga or ST or something, and then converted over to the 1300 color format. Uh-huh. It was just kind of a slideshow, and then later on, people took the technique and you know started doing uh, editors and stuff. Yeah, but it seems like since the CPU has to constantly be working, you can't really do anything except just display a static picture. Yeah, well. I'm trying to, like I think, I'm trying to remember on, on Tomahawk. Uh, so the other thing that you can do on the with the SCBs is um, is you could get an interrupt on any given scan line. And so when I first implemented it, I believe I did it with with interrupts. And so I, I think it, it took about half of the CPU time to change the 16 palettes uh-huh. for a 16 scan line region. So which meant I had the other half of the CPU time still left available. So I believe for the title screen of Tomahawk, I was decompressing audio and sending it to the Insonic chip. And then while I was changing the palettes, so the, the palettes would be interrupt driven. So I'd get an interrupt every 16 scan lines and I would push another set of 16 palettes through. Or maybe it was eight. I think I would do eight at a time, kind of a double buffered system. Uh-huh. And, um, and uh, once I returned from the interrupt handler every eight scan lines, the rest of the time I had available to just keep decompressing audio and push it over. Uh, to the Insonic. Oh, that's pretty uh, cool. Yeah, so, so I ha- think I had streamed music running, and, and I think I was streaming that music in off the floppy drive, too. Um, so that's where I had the 
uh, I think I had the 924 sector format um, for that. But uh, yeah, so my, my memory is a little fuzzy. That was a while back, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was definitely uh, just changing the palettes. I think it only took about half half the CPU time. Oh, so I didn't know that you could have the have interrupts get triggered on the scan lines. I thought, I mean, I don't really know too much about what the pin, what pins the A16 has, but I know the 6502 has just like an IRQ and an NMI interrupt. Yeah. So I assumed the A16 would be kind of the same thing, but it sounds like they have a little bit no, more interrupt capabilities. Well, yes, yeah, so, but the, the the graphics chip had, um, yeah, it was, it was an IRQ that you would get, and then once you got an, an IRQ, there was a set of possible hardware sources in the GS that could generate an interrupt. Uh, so the serial ports could generate it, the smart port for the floppy drive could generate it, the video controller, I don't remember what it's called now, but, you know, anyway, so that could generate on, on scan lines or V-blank. And there's a V-blank and there's one for every scan line that you could get. And so, like, when you got a scan line interrupt, it wouldn't tell you which scan line had generated the interrupt. You would just have to read the scan line counter and go, okay, what scan line am I on? And... Uh. So basically, yeah. when, basically, when you get an interrupt, you have to like first figure out what caused the interrupt before you can do anything with it. Right. Um, and and then you usually have to clear. So each interrupt, uh, each hardware that could generate interrupts also had a different register you'd have to write to to clear the interrupt. Uh, so, okay. yeah. So if if somebody generated an interrupt in your handler, you'd have to pull all the different sources, find out who it was, do whatever you were going to do to handle the interrupt, and then clear the interrupt source. And then when you return, then when you, when you return from interrupt, if somebody, if one of the other pieces of hardware had generated another interrupt, the interrupt line would still be low. You'd come right back in, and then you'd have to go pull everybody again. <laughs> so, okay, now, now who is it, right? And so, you know, you service all the different sources of, of IRQs. Yeah. Um, yeah, and actually, I, I, uh, well, one thing I was going to mention. Uh, so I, I thought more about the space ace stuff I was doing, and I realized that I, I didn't have the video capture on the on the GS. I had a Mac back in the 90s, and so I'm pretty sure I, I captured the video source from the Macintosh, and then I took the video data, and I, can, and I sent it over to the GS, and then that's where I was playing a background. I would pick as much of it as I could fit into the 8 megs of memory, because I had an octa RAM <laughs> on, on my GS, and so I could load an 8 meg uh, segment up, and then, um, you know, and then play back basically a... a, a a few seconds. I don't remember if it was the 10 seconds or, you know, Not eight seconds. Or yeah, it wasn't very much, but, but I thought it certainly was, um, it was, uh, so I thought it was possible to, um, to compress the video data such that you could get a pretty healthy segment of Space Ace or Dragon Slayer, you know, uh, on the GS. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, and that was a that was that was an area that I, I thought would be cool and wasn't really well represented because there was almost no video. I mean, like video was just not even really an option, or no one even considered it an option on, on the right. GS. So, uh, but it was very cool to see those those games and also the game the logic for those games was so simple uh-huh. that you could certainly run the the logic to see if someone's hitting the the direction at the right you know, window of time. Uh-huh. You'd, you'd run that logic in V blank or whatever with no problem. And spend the rest of your time just decompressing and pushing video frames through into the uh, into the video memory. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I never kind of completed it, and I got pulled into Super Nintendo and you know, and then other things. But yeah, that you know. So I, I forgot if you I forgot if you answered this. Um, did you ever see the 
the official Space Ace um, release by ReadySoft for the 2GS? No, I don't think I did. No, so, so someone actually made the, the full game out for it. Well, it wasn't really the full game. It was like literally like nine floppies. Oh, jeez. And each scene would last like like five seconds or something. So you'd like play a scene, then you'd have to wait for it to load, play a scene, then oh, like no. change discs. And it, um, they would only... The backgrounds were always static, so they'd take scenes where the background didn't, didn't move, and they would just animate like the foreground. Okay. So... So they altered the movie a bit then in order to make that work, I assume. They did what? They, they altered the, the actual the video, the video quite a bit in order to make it work on the GS. Um, I think they they just focused on the scenes where the background didn't move. Because there okay. were a lot of scenes where the background didn't move. But there were some scenes where it was like, you know, like going through like a tunnel, a checkerboard tunnel, and the tunnels like animated. That They would never try to attempt that. Right. But I remember thinking that it was pretty amazing what they accomplished but it sounds like what what you're what you were dabbling with was quite a bit more impressive <laughs> well I, yeah i mean i you know, I, I should look at, i guess i guess i should probably look and see what they were doing but yeah i was trying to do a full video codec where i decompress the entire video frame and send it to the screen every time although the other thing is that i believe the entire video frame for the capture i had was less than full screen size i think it was like a one quarter screen like 160 by 100 or something oh. the cameras in in those early 90s i think were less than 320 200 uh <laughs> generally because yeah. uh, they didn't have very much bandwidth coming in off of a an image capture device right but um but yeah i definitely think the platform was capable of of some lower res video playback um but i guess you know no one just got there in time basically yeah pretty much it pretty much collapsed. It seems. It just seems unfortunate that, like when when Apple made the TGS, they didn't add things like double buffering or like being able or adding some kind of hardware to like copy RAM really fast stuff like that. Yeah, stuff yeah, that like, totally would have did it. Yeah. yeah well, so that that was the other thing is like no one thought you could even do a scrolling game on it when I was first doing Rastan, and I I showed a early demo of it at CES in like I think '89. And it just got everyone's attention. Um, yeah, and then, uh, so what I ended up doing there, just as some more background, is um, is I did a, a series of tests on how fast I could write to video memory. Uh-huh. And so the deal was that the whole video output system was largely carried over from the original Apple, Apple II, um, which meant that it was like a one megahertz clock but the Apple II like had a stretch clock. The clock wasn't at a regular pace. It was kind of synchronized with the color burst of NTSC. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's just some tricky timing. And it's really kind of keyed around uh, a nominal one, one megahertz clock. Anyway, so on the GS, um, they kept all that for compatibility and just didn't have to re-engineer at all. Um, but that meant that the 2.8 megahertz, uh, 65.816 had to slow down to about one megahertz whenever it wrote to the, uh, the IO memory, the, kind of the Apple II side of the world. Uh-huh. And, and so what that meant was that your 2.8 megahertz processor uh, runs, runs at 1 megahertz a lot of the time <laughs> if you're spending a lot of your time trying to get stuff to the screen. And, um, and so uh, 
Yeah, so so the first thing I remember trying was using the MVN MVP instructions, which were opcodes that purported to actually move data around, uh-huh. but they were seven cycles a byte or, <laughs> four, or 14 cycles a word. Uh, and if you try to move data from E1-2000 somewhere else in E1-2000, the read and the write are both coming at one megahertz, right? So so your the CPU is just like horribly stalled. Um but didn't they have like a a setting where you could like write to like bank one instead of bank E one and it was supposed to run faster? Yeah, so and, and the major advantage there was not so much that the write was faster, but that the reads were faster. Oh. So like for, for so so for Rastan, being able to read from two point eight megahertz memory, uh, instead of reading from one megahertz memory, uh, that was of course the, the big win there. Um, but on the writes, the writes would still pass through up to bank E1, which is uh, one megahertz uh, clock speed okay. Uh, memory. Okay. Um, and but but even then, so the the key deal there is that if you write to that memory in bytes, you're kind of screwed because you have to synchronize the two point eight gigahertz or two point eight megahertz clock <laughs> and the one megahertz clock. Yeah, I go to gigahertz nowadays. Uh, but uh, yeah, so anyway, you have to synchronize the the two clocks, which effectively means that you lock step up at one megahertz. Um, and so you would get one byte write at one megahertz, and then you would get an instruction fetch at 2.8, and maybe you know do some other work at 2.8. And by the time you're ready to do your next one megahertz uh, memory access, you've missed that window of time, right? And so effectively, you're only writing at uh, every other one megahertz uh, interval. <laughs> and so at least going to 16-bit mode. So in 16-bit mode, uh, because the the 16 is doing the two 8-bit writes kind of back-to-back as atomic, as adjacent bus cycles. Uh-huh. Um, you'll get, uh, you'll you'll always get a pair of one megahertz writes to, to bank you one, and then you'll lose a cycle. Um, so if, if you're fast, you only lose one cycle. If you're doing a bunch of other stuff, you can lose two or three cycles. And and so that so that's that was the kind of the the key thing is I found that if you write, um, if you can write three cycles per byte. Um, or six cycles per word, then uh, you'll get two one megahertz cycles that you write to, and then only one me- one one megahertz cycle that you go idle that you aren't accessing the memory bus. Uh-huh. So you get two and three cycles. But then if you go slower than six cycles, um, which is three cycles a byte, so six cycles per word, three cycles per byte. Um, so it's basically uh, three cycles per byte. You waste one one megahertz cycle, four cycles per byte you waste two, and then five and a half cycles you waste three. So, um, so, uh, and then the the default memory move was seven cycles, which would be, you know, which was just incredibly horribly slow. <laughs> uh, anyway, and so uh, so most of the instructions in the sixty five eight sixteen instruction set were extended versions of the sixty five zero two instruction set, uh-huh. and the problem with that is they would add extra cycles to do. 16-bit operations because they were designed to do 8 or 16 and so they would go slower doing 16 but all the instructions there were a few instructions that were added specifically for the 816 they were always processing 16-bit data and as a result they took us they were more efficient fundamentally than the than the variable with 6502 instructions and so the two i used most for rastan was um pea and pei and um, the the PEA uh, was 
a one byte opcode and then 16 bits of constant data and it would push it onto the stack. Uh-huh. And so by putting the stack onto the super high res frame buffer memory uh, and then pushing constant data onto it, um, that's how everything gets drawn on Rastan. Uh, so all, 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 yeah, so all the all the screen tiles and all of the uh, all the sprites, they're all pushes onto the stack uh, <laughs> of, of constant data. Um, Holy cow! Yeah, and then the scrolling, those are all PEIs. And so what the PEI was designed to do is it was designed to take uh, a 16-bit address of something that you have in your zero page and put it on the stack, so you can use that zero page and you can restore it later. But what I did is I put the the zero page or the direct page, I would put it at one place on my screen, and then I put the stack on another place on my screen. So the direct page would be my source, and then the stack would be my destination. And then I would push through the PEI, which would pick up two bytes from direct page and put them on the stack. And so the, the PEI would basically load two bytes and store two bytes and do it all in six cycles. Wow. And and that, and the fastest I could do it with a low score was like eight cycles or ten cycles, um, which meant I would idle another one or two one megahertz clock, you know, bus clocks and the video memory. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so so that was the big the big win. Um, and then a couple other things that, that were kind of noteworthy about that system is uh, so when when you're scrolling the screen, like you say, the whole when Rastan the players generally running to the right, and so the whole screen has to scroll to the left. Uh-huh. And there's no page flipping, so all the pixels are on are visible on the fly as the game is running. Uh-huh. Um, and um, uh, so um, so for the scrolling piece, I needed to. Um, um, uh, deal with the fact that if I if I was moving scan lines over from top of the screen to the bottom of the screen, the video refresh would catch me partway through and I would get a big tear. Yep. In the middle of the screen. Yeah. So in, so instead, I ended up with um, I think like eight different scrolling routines, um, and each scrolling routine uh, would move the data. Um, from the along the axis of the scroll. So so when you're scrolling to the right, or when you're scrolling to the left, running to the right, uh, I would pick up data, I would pick up a column of pixels, uh, and I would copy it to the left. And then I would move over and pick up a column of pixels and overwrite the one I just moved. So I was basically moving columns across. So when the when the beam caught me partway through, there'd be a column that had a little tear in it, but the tear was localized to the column. All the columns to the left were already fully moved, all the columns to the right were not yet moved, oh. and so it was far more visually stable. I, the tiers would be small and localized, and if you and you can see playing Rastan because it tends, I think, it runs at like fifteen or twenty frames a second, generally, which usually means it takes you know two or three frames for it to do a scroll. And you'll see there's kind of a, a rubber banding effect um, as it's scrolling, where where it's it's moved some columns over, and the refresh comes through and shows you the the partial movement, and so part of the of the screen is wider, effectively, <laughs> and then um, you know, and then the rest of it will catch up later. Um, so yeah, I had custom scroll routines for left, right, up, down, and the diagonals, um, and then uh, some other kind of crazy thing about the rendering system was um, that uh, so so part of the problem there is trying to to touch as few bytes as possible for the sprites. Um, 
So it, it took a it took most of the time just to scroll the screen, and um, but the problem was, was I also needed to, um, uh, you know, I, I also need to update what was on the screen, yeah. all the sprite stuff, and so I did all that as kind of an off-screen buffer operation in Bank One. So I so I had I had the so I would start with just the tiles with no sprites on them. Uh, for what for wherever the player was in the screen, and then when I wanted to draw sprites, I uh, every sprite. Uh, so first of all, I, I had a thing what I which I called code sprites. So I took every sprite and I and I loaded it in and generated two functions for every sprite. So one one function was the um, was the back save function. Um, uh, actually, it might even had three functions. Um, so, I, uh, let's see what, no, I think it was just two. So, so I had, I had one function that would draw, I think it would save and draw, and then I had another one that would, would restore. So, so effectively what was going on is that, let's say we wanted to draw Rastan somewhere on the screen. Uh-huh. Um, actually maybe, I, maybe I did have three functions. It's been too long. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go, go with the three function description because it's nothing <laughs> else it's actually easier. Uh, I might have combined the the save and the draw together, but anyway. But conceptually, there's three different steps that need to happen. First, I need to take all the pixels that are, are going to be modified that are underneath Rastan, and I need, I need to have those. Um, so uh, so what I didn't want to do is have to redraw the tiles uh, to erase a character. So instead, what I did is all the pixels under a character, I'd save it away, and I would uh, I would draw all the pixels that that correspond to Rastan, and then once I had drawn that 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 frame i would then take my saved pixels and i would draw them back where they were effectively erasing the rastan sprite okay so a sprite a sprite uh process consisted of save the background draw the sprite and then erase the sprite by restoring the background okay um and anyway and all those were were functions so um so what i would effectively do is i would look at the bit patterns for for rastan and there'd be a whole bunch of transparencies say before to the left of his head and then be a few pixels of his head and so rather than trying to have a big rectangular block of the pixel data for the sprite instead i i just had a function i would generate which would say load you know 16-bit constant which would which was four pixels and store it in memory either with a push to the stack or with a store to direct page i remember exactly which way i did i think i think i did it with a push the pea stuff mm-hmm. um so I, I would set the stack to the right edge of, of the pixel data, and I would just push it for that scan line. And then similarly, the restore routine would load the data up that had been saved, the background map that had been saved previously, and it would push it back over there to erase it. Um, so so in, in bank one, uh, I would uh, start with the blank, uh, blank image, and I would, I would pull my sprites on it, and then the scrolling routine would effectively push all the data up Move it over, and by writing it back, it would it would copy it up to the to bank E1. Mm-hmm. So all my sprite drawing was done with shadowing disabled, and then the scrolling routine would effectively put it up to the to the slow memory. Oh. And then after I'd copied it up to the slow memory, then I, I I I erased all my sprites by taking the back saved version of the of the playfield and 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 putting all those bytes back over to erase my sprites. So that was that was basically the the process for a frame. Was save background, draw sprites, scroll screen, then restore background over the sprites. 
So it seems like you'd pr you'd have to deal with the, the sprites flickering unless you were careful. Well, well, so that that's why all the sprite draw and restore work was done with the shadow rights disabled. Oh, okay. So they were all happening at 2.8 megahertz directly into bank 01 memory. Mm -hmm. uh, although, so the shadowing, so I was shadowing bank 01 into bank zero, but I was not shadowing bank 01 to E1. Oh. So, so all the sprite draw restore work was done, um, you know, only to bank one. And then in the scrolling routine was shadowing all rights from O one from bank one to bank E one. So they would actually go into video memory and show up on the screen. Okay. So in order in order for act for it to actually show up on the screen, the scrolling routine would have to be called. Right. Yeah, so so even if you were just standing there doing nothing, I would I would have to do uh, basically a full screen blit to read all the pixels from bank one and write them back to themselves. Okay. Basically a, a null scroll scroll operation. <laughs> Just, just in order to get all those bytes to get sent up to E1 and show up on the screen. <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy platform. So did you, did you ever? I mean, did you ever know any other developers from like other companies, like like Will Harvey, like the Zany Golf, the Immortal? Because I know they had to deal with scrolling issues. I'm just wondering if they used similar techniques or if you know. Yeah, I don't know of anyone else. So I think I was the first to develop a lot of those techniques. Um, uh, but um, so I, I knew the guys that did Task Force and uh, the Alien Mind guys. Uh -huh. So so I worked with Robin Carr and Matt Crisdale, the guys that did Alien Mind, mm -hmm. to reverse engineer the um, the two GS uh, three and a half inch drive controller. Uh -huh. So uh, so so both Tomahawk and Alien Mind came out around the same time, and we both had custom. Uh, floppy disk formats. Um, oh. So we kind of shared knowledge about how the how the the drive hardware worked and how the OS used the drive. Mm -hmm. um, and we both had had uh, had denser formats and um, and and faster load times. So we, we effectively we didn't have the four. So one track rotation would give us all of our data for both Tomahawk and Alien Mind, um, which is the thing I talked about before mm -hmm. of avoiding the uh, you know the sector read. And I think even on Rastan, I might have had my own my own DOS where I could I could read the whole track, even though it was a four to one interleave. I would read all four sectors, and um, so it, when past the track, I would read all the sectors out of order and just store them away, and then I would decode them separately, um, so so I could have a four times faster load time than the than than ProDOS would do. So okay, so I I was actually curious about that. Is that is that the reason why, um, like certain demos from like FTA could load super fast because mm -hmm. they were like just reading the raw bytes, and that's also the reason why if you if you use the regular operating system calls, the reads are so incredibly slow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because the regular operating system was running; it would take it four rotations of the drive, you know, of the platter before it got it got all the data off the track. So it was effectively reading at one quarter speed. Yeah, it was just horrible. I mean, and, and yeah, there, there was a lot of things about the the software uh, in that Apple IIgs era which just seemed, um, you know, it left a lot to be desired. So <laughs> the way that uh, the way that the GSOS, you know, like the windowing system, the menus, the windows, all the the bit, all the the graphics splitting routines, yeah. they were, you know, super generic and super inefficient and 
you know, I, I just remember kind of being frustrated by the, uh, the, the, the slowness of the response of the system. And it seemed unnecessary just because, uh, you know, the, the system had faster pathways to move stuff around. It's just the OS didn't use them. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I don't, I don't know if that was because of overly conservative software development practices or maybe there were legitimate reasons why you needed a four to one sector interleave or you needed the slower drawing routines. And I was just dealing with a, with a constrained enough subset of, uh, of situations in, you know, in my pr programming interaction that I could get away with shortcuts effectively. I mean, I, I never really understood what the full set of requirements were that these other, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, what requirements prompted these other guys to do things the way they did, or if they just didn't know where the fast paths were through the system, you know, <laughs> gonna go for the second one yeah <laughs> yeah we're like problem so um do you still have the source code i do i don't throw anything away i i have a uh, i have a storage facility with lots of stuff in it um and i haven't probably booted the, the gs up in over 10 years so uh probably actually closer to 20 years now that I think about it. Yeah. Uh, it's been a long time. So um, I have no idea if it even works or not. But yeah, one of these days I'll, I'll have to dig it out and uh, you know, see if it works and what it does. Um, yeah. All so right. Do you, do, you have, do you have a working GS system? Why, yes, I do. It's right here. All right. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I recently got back into it. So I wanna... Yeah, I've... Yeah. Yeah, I, I've got. Uh, I think I had a Transwarp, like a seven megahertz or something, or mm -hmm. nine megahertz, or something crazy. And then, um, and then I also had a DMA SCSI controller card uh -huh. that I remember was just blazingly fast. Um, but um, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, I, I remember actually by the by the kind of early to mid '90s there, the the Apple II was a pretty peppy system if you stayed in text mode. Like I think I had uh, the guy that did Merlin. He had some program launcher. I don't remember what it's called. Procell, maybe. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember. I, yeah. So I remember I used that and uh, and the caching SCSI controller card. I, I turned the machine on and it would just boot up to that main menu in about you know half a second or something. Um, really? Yeah. It was it was super super fast. And then um, and then I would. Um, I could I could basically run back and forth between the programs and they would each day just take a half second or a second to launch because they would all just come in off the hard drive super fast and they would be DMA'd right in the memory so none of the 6502 copying stuff around. Um, but, yeah. Wow, because I, I had a SCSI card, probably not the fancy one you're talking about, and just a regular hard drive. And, and I recently replaced it with... Um, compact flash adapter oh which, really okay which i thought would be like super super fast but when i booted mm -hmm. it up it was just you know meh of course <laughs> I, I don't have like the transwarp so it's probably cpu cpu limited but yeah it maybe was just, it was slower than i expected <laughs> yeah well the other the other thought i had recently was that with all these new inexpensive um uh like single board computers i wonder how hard it would be to actually make a uh, a board that would plug in to the 6502 uh, 40-pin dip socket and emulate the entire processor in software using a modern microcontroller. 
probably so, not hard. Yeah. But, but um, but what would that, what would that get you to do that? Could you make well, it faster? Yeah. So yeah. So you you could make it faster. Um, you know, probably tens if not hundreds of megahertz. So you could make it crazy fast if you wanted. The other thing you could do is you could use the video out, USB out, Ethernet out, wireless out. I mean, you could you could do a bunch of stuff to give alternate um, I/O capabilities kind of directly out through the CPU instead of having to have to rely upon plug-in boards and stuff. Uh-huh. So you, you could pretty thoroughly modernize uh, an Apple platform, I think, with um, you know with one of these Raspberry Pis or um, you know, like there's a Kickstarter for the chip with a $9 part that has Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and stuff. Um, so it would probably be a bunch of software, and it may need to be a little bit of hardware to interface the 40-pin the dip package into a form that you can communicate and drive all those pins. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it should be possible to um, emulate a CPU with a, you know, in software nowadays at, at uh, 65 with two speeds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, plus plus, basically. Yeah. But it's my it's my understanding that even if you made the CPU like super super fast, you'd still have to like slow it down to talk to like the memory and the like the disk drives and stuff, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, certainly for the disk drives you would. Uh, for the memory, you could choose whether you want to use the memory outside the CPU or not. So you could effectively cache the RAM. I mean, it, assuming you don't have a DMA controller in the system, if you have a DMA controller. Then you you uh, well even with the DMA controller, assuming that the, you you can watch the address bus being changed by the DMA controller, you can realize that it's DMA and provide the data yourself, presumably. Uh, yeah, and again, I, I don't know. I'm I'm not enough of a hardware guy to know all the ins and outs of what what's going on there, but it it just seems like modern systems are so much more powerful and sophisticated uh, than you know, than back in the day that yeah. it seems like you can do software emulation for what used to have to be done in, in, in hardware. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. In fact, a friend and I talked about, Hey, we should like, just take like a FPGA and make a new Apple two GS except make it much faster and better memory. And I got all excited. I'm like, oh, okay, I got to finish my laser disc replacement project first. Can't keep <laughs> yeah. like, can't keep starting new projects and not finishing old ones. Mm-hmm. But, that would so, definitely so, be so fun. Can you tell me a little bit about the laser disc replacement? Like, how, so what happens with that? Is it um, you do you provide the video and the interface, or does it still work with a laser disc? Or what, what's happening there? All right. Well, um, I should probably hit the road or get back to things. But um, if you have uh, you know any more questions about top protection stuff or Rastan or whatever, certainly happy to happy to help. You All know, right. Do well, these I conversations will. pretty easily. I'll look forward to uh, just that uh, email from the on the laserdisc stuff. I want, I want to see if uh, if I can get that over to, to John and help him fix his his broken laserdisc player. Okay, I'll look for a few uh, YouTube links. Okay, and send it over to you. That'd be cool. Yeah, and also please let me know when you're going to be uh, in town so that that we need to get together. All right, sounds great. Okay, well, thank right, well you, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, good talking to another uh, fellow Apple enthusiast from back <laughs> in the day. All right. Talk to you later.
This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net.